I don't know how many times I've sung that hymn, but man, that was powerful this time. I, just thinking about, I mean, we should always be thinking about the words when we sing, but just meditating upon those words as we sing, what a great ecclesiology it is. What a beautiful, poetic, and yet thorough um, laying out of the scriptures about what the church is and ought to believe and do. And uh, how fitting we sing that as we come to the time of our word this morning, the word of God. We've been thinking about the church the last couple of weeks. We're kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe the new year's kind of worn off. We're still in January. Maybe the cold has made us desensitized to the new year. But we're almost at the end of the month. And uh, But yet we're still as a church going through uh, learning about the church, reminding ourselves of the key doctrines of the church, reminding ourselves of what a church really is, what God has said about the church, what is true about the church, laying out those key doctrines, key foundational uh, truths about the church. But then with the idea that we're not simply going through a mental act exercise, but wanting to conform our lives and the life of our church to what the Scripture says a church should be. So we're not only looking at the truth, looking at laying out the theology of it, laying out the doctrine of it, but then also seeking to apply that. And that's what our emphasis is for these first couple of months in the new year. In the last two weeks we've been considering just sort of that basic question, what is a church? It's kind of, whenever you st- whenever I study a topic, I always want to go back to like, okay, let's go back to the very basic question, what are we dealing with here, right? And so we're talking about the church, well, what is it? And we talked about the word ekklesia, the Greek word that is normally translated as church, and just how the basic meaning of that word means to assemble or to gather, to congregate, to, to come together. And that's what a church is. God has called us together and we've looked at the different last week the different metaphors of the church how how do we understand what this gathering really is and and the apostles Paul in particular uses various analogies or various metaphors to describe what a church is that we are the body of Christ that we are the building of God we're the family of God how God has taken these disparate people these various people diverse groups of people who've come to faith in Christ because of the precious gospel of Christ how he has made us to be one we thought a little bit more about what, why we do that. Why is it that we gather as the people of God? How often we gather as the people of God? Where should we gather as the people of God? So we've really been the last couple of weeks laying out what I call the identity of the church, right? You're laying down the, the basic fundamental principles of what the thing is. And we're going to talk more in the, in the coming weeks about what the church does, the functioning of the church. But this morning I want to kind of take one more peek around this idea of identity, what is it that the church is? Because it's only when we understand what something is that we can see what it does and we can see its significance. So when we begin to understand what the church is, what our identity is as a church, we'll not only understand what we ought to do as a church, which is what we want to do. We want to be a good, a healthy, a vibrant church, a functioning church that parallels what we see in the New Testament. But I think in order to get there, sometimes we have to see the significance of something. If we see its significance, it will stir up in us a, I pray, a greater love, in this case, for the church. I pray understanding what the church is would stir up a greater love in our, in our, in our hearts for the church, and a, a greater desire to be a part of the church and functioning as a church. It will increase, renew our, our, our commitment to the church, reinvigorate our commitment to the church. And so today I want to focus again on the identity of the church, thinking about the, the place of the church in God's redemptive plan. And essentially, God's redemptive plan parallels history. Actually, is the main thread that runs through history. We oftentimes think of history as the 
occurrence of events, sometimes the occurrence of random events. We think that things just simply happen and we string, you probably did this in history class when you were in school, make timelines, right? This happens in this year, this happens in this year, this happens in this year, and history is just a string of events. Sometimes it appears to be random. Now, I don't want to be cliche because it has become cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway. History is really his story. It's God's story. It's the story of what God has done in history. And as we look to the scriptures to see what God has done over history, we find a singular purpose. We find a singular mission. We find a singular theme. We find a dominant trajectory. And all of those things point out God's redemption. God's redemption of sinful people. That is the whole point of human history. That is the whole theme of human history. That is the whole purpose of human history. God's plan to redeem His people. Where does the church appear in that redemptive plan? Where does the church fit into that plan? What is the role of the church in that plan? Those are some of the questions I want to try to answer this morning. And again, as we answer those questions, I pray that it will help us to see Again, more and more of the church's identity. What the church, again, is. What is it really? As we understand what the church is, it will help us to see the church's significance. It will help us to see the church's purpose. It will help us to see the church's function. And I pray that all of those things together would foster in us a greater love for and commitment to the church. Not just the church, universal, but this particular local church that is an expression or representation of that one holy apostolic church. Our outline this morning is going to come in three parts. I'm thinking about this maybe more from a construction point of view or a building point of view. So the three parts here are the plan, the plan's design. What is the plan? What does it look like? Then I want to look at the execution of that, how you put that plan into motion. How has everything come together so that the plan has been accomplished? And finally, at the very end, the plan's consummation, the end product, the end result. What do we do with that? If you want to turn to your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, this morning, and also to the book of Titus. The words will be on the screen, but the first point will be, cent- will be anchored kind of in these two passages, and you may want to have uh, those parts of the Bible open, at least for the first part of the message. Titus, chapter 1, and Ephesians, chapter 1. Let's consider first... The plan's design. Again, when we think about the church, we think about usually the day of Pentecost, that the church came into existence officially on the day of Pentecost, ten days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But the church's plan and purpose in God's redemptive plan goes back much further. And I think that we see that in these two passages you've opened up to, Ephesians chapter 1 and in Titus chapter 1. There are in other places as, as well But these are representative passages that help us to see the plan and how it goes back even beyond creation itself. So look at 1st Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted 
by the command of God, our Savior. And then Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 and going to verse 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. As we look about the plans, we see the design of God's redemptive plan. I think there are three observations that we can make from both these passages. I'm going to distill them kind of together. And the first is that the church is God's elect. The church is God's elect. Two weeks ago, as we were thinking in that basic, that first message, the foundational message, what is a church? We answered the question, who gathers together as a church? And we said that there are a multitude of names that the scriptures use to identify who these people are that gather together as a church. And one of the names we set forward at that time was the elect, or God's elect. And that is what occurs here, as we see in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. We, as the church, are God's elect. The word elect means to select, to pick out, or to choose. And we see that translation offered in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose for himself those people that would be his special people, his dearly loved people from all of humanity. He selected some. He chose some. He elected some to be his people, the church. See this also in First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So God chose and set apart his elect as a people for himself, even before they existed, before the day of Pentecost. God elected his people to be the church. And Paul elaborates on why God would do this, why God would choose the church in Ephesians chapter 1. There are three reasons he gives us there. First, we see that the church's election is rooted in God's will. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, it says that God chose the church according to the purpose of his will. Titus 1 2 says that God made this promise, this promise of choosing his people as the elect before the ages began. So, in other words, the choice of the church is God's choice. It's his unilateral choice. The church's election was God's to choose by his own free will. God thought it was good. God thought it was wise to redeem these people that he had chosen for himself. And so the church's election is rooted in God's will. But the church's election is also rooted in God's love. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read that in love he predestined us, the church, for adoption through Jesus Christ. So at the heart of the church's election is God's unmerited love. 
God did not randomly choose people to be His church. He cast His love upon some. Love that they didn't deserve, but which He nevertheless chose to impart. So again, at the heart of God's redemptive plan for His church is His love. God willed their redemption, sure, but it was not a cold and calculated plan. It was fueled by love. All that God would do in history to redeem His church was driven by love. And so if we understand history properly, we need to see it as a divine love story in which God pursues after this people, the church, that He loved, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1-4, from before the foundation of the world. And that is why when we begin to understand what God has done for the church, that our proper response to Him is to love Him with a pure and devoted and undying love. 1 John 4.19 says that we love Him because He first loved us. So God's love of us, for us, is the prompt for our love for Him. So the church's election is rooted in God's love. And then third, Paul notes in Ephesians, one of the church's election is rooted in God's grace. The church's election is rooted in God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says that we have redemption according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So God chose us to be His people, His eternal people, by His unmerited, sovereign grace. There is no inherent quality in us that would prompt God to redeem us. There are no notable deeds that we have done to elicit this kind of gracious response from God. God did this by His grace. He chose us by His grace. We've come into this position by His grace. And not just a little bit of grace, but Paul says in Ephesians 1.8 that He lavished this grace upon us. This is the abundance of His grace the full measure of His grace that He would pour out upon us to call us together to be His people. Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So when we consider the exalted place that the church has in God's redemptive plan, we must understand that it is only by God's grace. The church is the elect, God's elect. We are the people that He has chosen to redeem by His will, by His love, and by His grace. The second observation we can make from Ephesians 1 and Titus 1 is that the church's redemption results in eternal life. The church's redemption results in eternal life. In Titus 1-2, the church's redemption comes, Paul says, with the hope of eternal life. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, God's redemptive plan is all-encompassing. He writes, it is a plan for the fullness of time in which God will unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the goal of redemption here is restoration. Man's fall disrupted the entire created order. But God worked in history. God's redemptive plan worked to bring all creation. He is going to set it all right. And that includes bringing His redeemed humanity together in union with Christ and into a right relationship with God. To the bride of Christ, that's one of the, the titles we used last week to identify the church even further, to see this analogy, the bride of Christ. 
as Christ's bride, we are united with Christ. We are brought into union with Christ. And so we, in this union, we share his life. And his life, of course, is eternal life. God's elect who put their faith in Christ inherit a salvation that is eternal. Eternal life then means that the church will endure beyond this life. We will endure forever. Far past the span of human history. Far past the scope of whatever limited lifetime I have in this world. Beyond the day of judgment when God is going to restore all things to their proper order. What I think we need to understand here is because of the eternality of the church going forward into future history, into future eternity, is that the church is not God's plaything. The church is not Christ's side chick. It is Christ's bride, His treasured bride. He has redeemed her, not just for a moment, not just for a limited time, but for all of eternity. The church's redemption results in eternal life. Third, the church's eternal destiny was set in eternity past. That's the third thing I think we can bring out from these two passages. The church's eternal destiny was set in eternity past. Again, God did not decide the church's fate accidentally or incidentally. He determined its future destiny in eternity past. Long before the church came into existence, long before the Old Testament promises of redemption, long before even creation itself. God committed himself to the eternal salvation of the church when he elected them to be his people. And when did he elect them to be his people? Well, Titus 1-2 says that God promised the church this eternal relationship, this eternal destiny with himself before the ages began. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says that God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. So God, even before creation, determined to redeem a people for himself, a people that he had chosen for himself, and he committed himself to them even before he created the world. He made this plan. And he made this, as again, Titus 1-2 says, as a promise, a promise to himself, a promise to them that he would see it all the way through. What God begins, he finishes. God didn't set this ball of redemption in motion just to leave us twisting in the wind. He initiated it and has worked through history constantly, faithfully, to bring all things to the appointed end. If God's redemptive plan in history, if God's redemptive plan is the main goal of history, if it's the main focus of history, if it's the main activity of history, then the church occupies a central place in this divine, eternal drama that God is working out. And if that is true, if the church has an essential place in God's redemptive plan, then how significant and how vital and how glorious is the church of Jesus Christ? This is why I love this, the hymn that we just sang. Because it exalts the church and presents her to be this glorious bride of Christ. And if the church then has this significance, if it has this vitality, if it displays such glory, then how much more ought our love and our devotion and our commitment be to it for the sake of the glory of God's name and the delight of the church's inheritance in Christ? 
This should stir us up to see what God has done for us and just how central what He has done is to history. It's not just one thing of many that He has done. It is the central thing He has done in history. That's what history's goal is. That's what history's theme is. And so, our response then should be like Paul's response in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14. through 14. That passage is a doxology. The word doxology just means a word of praise. Paul is praising God in those opening verses of Ephesians. It's as if he is meditating upon what the church's place is in God's redemptive plan. And as he is thinking about how they are the beneficiaries of God's redemption, he just goes off on this, not rant, but goes off on this extended discourse of praise. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In fact, he's so caught up in praise, he doesn't stop his sentence until the end of verse 14. All that punctuation that you see there in those first, what, what's that, 11, 12 verses, is one sentence. Paul can't put his pen down. He's meditating upon the greatness of what God has done for the church, and it just is phrase after phrase after phrase of praise to God for what he has done for us. Such is the glorious reality of God's redemptive plan for the church. And why does Paul begin Ephesians in this way? Verses, or chapters 1 through 3 are the doctrinal realities, the doctrinal truths of what God has done for the church. It's the foundation upon which the church stands because in 4 through 6, he's going to give them instructions for how the church ought to live. Right? We can't function properly. We can't live properly unless we know what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, doxology, this praise we've considered, theology, the truth about who God is and what He has done for us, ought to lead then, to use a biological term, physiology, how we function. Our identity in Christ, what God has done for us, should lead us to obedience, should lead us to submission, to lead us to faithfulness in living to the glory of God as His people. So these two passages from Titus and Ephesians should help us understand that the church is not incidental or accidental to God's activity in history, but quite the contrary. All that God has done in history serves as the predetermined, as His predetermined decision to redeem a people with whom He would share an eternal relationship. So that's the plan. That's the plan's design. When you make plans for something, you don't make plans just to make plans, right? You make plans to do them, do something with them. If you're building a house, you make plans to do what? To build a house. So let's think about the execution. How did God do this? How did God put his plan into motion? How did he fulfill that plan in history? What we're going to do now is what we, in theology, call biblical theology. We're going to walk through the scriptures and see God's plan of redemption as the central theme through the scriptures. And of course, there's a lot of scripture to work through, so we have to kind of abbreviate this. Alright? But let's start with where the Bible starts. We again read in first, in Titus 1, 2, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that God planned to redeem his people before the ages began, before the foundation of the world. So the proper place to start thinking about how God would put this into motion is at the very beginning of history with creation itself. In the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. 
And that included human beings who were the, the most prized of all of his creation. We've gone through this before, right? Look at Genesis 1. If you're going through the narrative of creation, after each day, God says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Even on the sixth day, he says it's good until he makes human beings. And then it says that he, was, he stepped back and he looked and saw that it was very good. And only then does God rest from his creation. So human beings are the pinnacle of God's creative activity. And not only that, we stand out from the rest of creation because we bear the image of God. And because God has appointed us, called us, to rule with him as his co-regents. We exercise dominion over all that God has made. Well, God did not create human beings simply to be another brilliant expression of his divine creativity. He created us in his image for the purpose of having us as his people. He created us for the purpose of sharing relationship with them. We think about, again, the Adam and Eve when he created them in the Garden of Eden. But he came down. He walked among them. He walked with them. He shared life with them. He shared a relationship with them. But we also read not long after creation that these human beings he made would rebel against him. They rebelled against his design for creation. They rebelled against his law, his, his, his requirements, his rules, his ordinances. And in their sin, they disrupted the created order. We call that event the fall. The fall of man from his lofty position. The fall of man from a pristine relationship with God to now being people that are objects of his wrath. But even then in the fall, though God said that on the day that you eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit, you will surely die... They did not die. We see God's grace manifested even in those early moments of creation. God did not leave those human beings without hope. That even though in that moment of their first act of disobedience, God promised redemption to redeem, God promised redemption to a sinful people. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to Satan here, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We call this passage the Proto-Evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. There is Adam and Eve, crushed by the weight of their own sin, under the condemnation of God because they had disobeyed him. There, God announces hope that he would redeem them. He would forgive their sin. He would crush the serpent who led them into death. He would restore them to a right relationship once again. And God begins to show how he would do that in two ways. It says that immediately afterward that he makes an animal sacrifice so that he could clothe them in these animal skins. God caused something else to die, made something else to die so that Adam and Eve could live. And these clothes were like the clothes of righteousness that we are, that are put upon us when we trust in Christ. Christ's righteousness is applied to us. We also see that when their son, righteous Abel, died, when he was killed by his brother, evil brother Cain, God gave them another son named Seth so that the promise of a future offspring would be the means by which God would bring about his redemption. That redemption couldn't come through Abel, he's dead. He can't come through Cain. He is so wicked. That redemption will come through Seth. The line of redemption remains viable. And though the offspring that would redeem them would not appear yet for many generations, 
God is still here working out his redemptive plan to ensure that he would redeem the people he had chosen for himself. You continue on those early chapters of Genesis, and we see the world continuing to descend into sin. The human race is so thoroughly corrupted by sin that God sent judgment upon the world. He was going to wipe out humanity, right? But in a beautiful gospel picture, God preserved one man and his family as a sign of his commitment to the promise he made to himself and to his elect that he would redeem his people. And that man was Noah, right? God caused Noah, called Noah, commanded Noah to build an ark that would spare him and his family through the judgment of the flood. So Noah's ark was really the ark of his salvation, right? The ark of God's salvation. That was the ark of redemption. That is how Noah and his family would be spared by remaining safe within the confines of this ark. That's what saved them from the flood. Well, Peter draws the gospel parallel for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Peter's saying here is that just as the ark saved Noah and his family from God's judgment, God's elect are saved from God's eternal judgment in the ark of Christ who laid down his life to save us. And just as Noah and his family passed through the waters in a kind of baptism, so also we pass through the waters of baptism to signify our salvation, our hope in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. After the flood, God gave Noah the command to, to be fruitful and multiply, to repopulate the world. But we see again in those early chapters of Genesis that the situation in the created order was not much different than before the flood. And so God continued to work out his redemptive plan, this time by choosing one man from among those that were now on the earth that would be the one through whom his redemption would come. And that man was Abraham. God chose Abraham. And in choosing Abraham, he reiterated his promise of redemption. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God was setting Abraham apart from the rest of humanity in order to be a blessing to all of humanity. Abraham's biological descendants we know would be the nation Israel. They would become a great nation. And God would use that nation to bring redemption to the rest of the nations of the world because God's elect come from every nation and every people and every tribe and every language. God has his people in every culture and every place throughout the globe. And so God was promised, even though they had come together to take over God, right? The Tower of Babel, let us make a tower so that we can rival ourselves and be like God. God confused their languages and scattered them throughout the earth. Even in that act of judgment, God is showing grace because he is going to set aside one man who will be their redemption. That redemption would come for every nation, people, tribe, and language. Again, within a few generations, Abraham's family 
would move to Egypt. And in Egypt, we see a population growth that was a sign of God's blessing, his supernatural blessing upon his people. But after a few generations, the king of Egypt enslaved God's people and launched a pogrom against their baby boys. But once again, God was faithful to his promise and continued working his redemptive plan. He delivered them from Egyptian bondage in the Exodus and divided the Red Sea for their miraculous escape. And the Exodus, once again, is a foreshadowing of God's future redemption for his people. Because a greater Moses, one greater than Moses, would come who would bring God's redemption to the elect that would break the bondage, their bondage to sin and death and Satan and lead them into the promised land of new and eternal life with God. God in the Exodus eventually led his people to Mount Sinai where he formed a covenant with them that would foreshadow the new covenant he would make with his people, the church. That, would, that redemption, that new covenant would come by the mediation of his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In that Sinaitic covenant, the Israelites shared an exclusive relationship with God and brought them his divine blessing. As we read through the testimony of Old Testament history, we see that God lavished grace upon grace upon grace upon Israel, but they did not respond in kind. They proved themselves to be faithless. They did not obey God. They did not live according to the covenant he had made with them. Faithless kings led faithless people in breaking covenant and in practicing idolatry. And for eight centuries, by his grace, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to call them to repentance, to call them to reconciliation with God, but with oftentimes little response. And so ultimately, God brought his judgment upon his people and sent them into exile. And if we didn't know any better, if we didn't know the rest of the story, for those that were living at that time, just read the book of Lamentations, it seems that there's no hope. What is, what is to be done now? Has God's plan been thwarted? Will he give up on his people? No. Absolutely not. And that's where a lot of the, the Jewish people today have a sense of hopelessness. That God has abandoned his people. He's not been faithful to his promise. But God made additional promises. He kept the promise that he would redeem his people by making additional promises. Two in particular. First, that he would send them a redeemer, the Messiah. A descendant of David. Who would break the powers that oppressed God's people. He would bring victory and redemption. He would lead people into God's righteousness and peace and truth and blessing. That Messiah would come. He would bring victory. But the way to victory would be suffering. It would be death. The Messiah would have to suffer. Suffering would be the only means by which God could redeem his people. As we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That Redeemer God would send in the fullness of time. His second promise was the promise of a new covenant. We read of that in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So God was going to make a new covenant. Not a covenant on stone, like the Ten Commandments that the people had to read as an outward motivation to do what is right. God would remove the heart of, of heart of stone and put into them a heart of flesh. He would write his law upon their hearts so they would have this internal desire to obey him and to love him and to walk with him and to live with him. God would put within them his spirit to make them alive and to inspire them into faithfulness. He would forgive their sins so that iniquity would no longer define the relationship between God and his people. And they would have life, eternal life, and never be in danger of his judgment again. God gave these promises to sustain his people because they would live under this weight of his judgment for six centuries. In the fullness of time then, God fulfilled his promise to redeem his elect in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made flesh for our redemption. Paul writes of this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. He was the one. He was the Messiah. He was the Redeemer. He would make the new covenant. Jesus could do this because he would succeed where Adam failed. Adam sinned against God. Adam did not obey God's command. Adam brought death to the whole human race. But Jesus, the second Adam, would live faithfully and righteously. He would be perfect and sinless in every way. He would live according to God's righteousness. And so it's his righteousness that brings life to us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, by grace, clothes us with the righteousness of Christ so that when God sees us, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of his Son. If he were to see our righteousness, they would be as filthy as dirty rags and there would be no way to have a relationship with him. But he clothes us with righteousness from Christ. Jesus laid down his life then. His perfect righteousness qualified him to lay down his life for us to make redemption. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we as God's elect might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Paul writes it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ died. His blood washes us of our sins. That is the price of redemption, so that we can be brought into a relationship with God and live with him forever. But Christ did not remain dead. Amen? To vindicate Christ and his righteousness, to declare the sufficiency of his death, to make redemption for us, to reward Christ for his obedience, God raised him from the dead 
and has given him a kingdom, has given to him a kingdom over which he will rule forever and ever with his radiant, beautiful and glorious bride, the church whom God chose as his people from before the foundation of the world. Christ fulfills the plan. But there's more. Fifty days after, fifty days after Christ's resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, the church was officially born. The Holy Spirit descended upon the first disciples of Jesus in accordance with the promise of the new covenant. God had faithfully now worked his redemptive plan to gather his elect together. What were they doing when the Holy Spirit came upon them? They were gathered together. They were meeting together to pray and to worship. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. The Spirit, it revives them. He brings them life and the church is born. The church is now commissioned to go into all the world and to go to all nations and tribes and peoples and languages, what we call the Great Commission, to take this promise of salvation that God has saved those He predestined from before the foundation of the world, that they should hear this message and respond to it in faith and that they too would take their place in the church. We see in the book of Acts and the epistles how the gospel began to spread in the first generation following Christ's resurrection. And it has continued on the same trajectory now for nearly 1,900 years. The church continues to be on this mission today. Why? Because God has His elect in every nation, people, tribe, and language. The church must go to find His elect by the preaching of the gospel so that the elect may be brought in and join the company of our number. That is our mission. We'll talk more about that in another sermon. But that's ongoing. It's not like it stopped with the first generation. The church continues. We continue to participate in this great commission because there are still people being saved. The numbers of the church are still being added. Churches are continuing to grow and to multiply. The church continues to persevere in this age of darkness because God is building His church. He is calling and gathering together His elect from every nation. Jesus promised His disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that He would build His church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Jesus has been faithful to that promise. He continues to build His church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of His people. And that's where we are on the timeline. We have history, right? We have a timeline. That's where we are. Mission of the church going to others, proclaiming the gospel, seeing more people come to faith in Christ, seeing churches continue to be established and planted for the glory of God in this world. We don't know how much longer this time will last, but as long as the world exists, we can be sure that God is continuing to draw together His elect to Himself through the preaching of the gospel by His people. The church is not only the recipient of God's redemptive plan, It's also the herald of God's redemptive plan so that others might join us in the blessing of eternal life. That's the execution of the plan. That brings us finally to the last aspect of this, the plan's consummation. The plan's consummation. At some point, God will draw history to a close. The full number of the elect will be brought in 
His active work of redeeming sinners will be complete. His redemptive plan will be brought to its consummation. And then what? Well, we'll inherit the fullness of all that God promised before the ages began. We'll experience the full reality of eternal life with God. And do you know that the full reality that we're going to experience, we get a taste of right now as we live together this life in the church? That what we're doing now is not preparation for eternity, it's a taste of eternity. We're doing an eternal activity. This is what we will do forever. The fellowship that we share among the saints. This is part of our inheritance. God has given us to one another. What a great blessing, right? What a great blessing that God would bring us together to enjoy one another, to sharpen one another, to encourage one another, to be the means by which we are sanctified. This is what we're doing now. This is a taste. What we celebrate together, what we live together as life together in the church, this is a taste of what is to come. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, John writes, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In his presence, in God's presence, we will worship the Lord and his Christ for the glorious redemption that he has provided for us. And he will lavish upon us the glory of our inheritance. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. David writes in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18, And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul writes, After, encourage one another with these words. John MacArthur, writing upon this subject, observed, All of this means that the church is so monumental, so vast, so transcendent, that our poor minds can scarcely begin to appreciate its significance in the eternal plan of God. The ultimate aim of God's plan is not merely to get us to heaven, but the drama of our salvation has an even grander purpose, relationship with God forever and ever. We are a people called out for his name, redeemed, conformed to his son's image, made to be an immense, incomprehensible, all-surpassing expression of love between the persons of the Trinity. We ought to be profoundly grateful and eager and thrilled to be a part of it. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. When we see how central the church is to God's eternal plan and his working in history, how can we not love the church more? How can we not be profoundly grateful and eager and thrilled to be a part of it? How can we not participate in its life and health and mission? May God fulfill and work out his eternal purposes among us. May his plan of redemption be the fullness of what captures us as a people. May it be worked out as we celebrate life together in this body. And may it propel us to take the gospel to others so they too might be brought in and enjoy this glorious blessing. Let's pray. God, we are grateful this morning for what 
you have done. That all of history really is about your redemption of us. Lord, our hearts are grateful because we don't deserve it. What is Christ's reward for his suffering? It's us. Sinful people. The people that he has redeemed. People that he finds beautiful. The people who are called the bride of Christ, glorious and splendid and beautiful, not because that's what we are, but because of what he has done for us. I pray that we would be eager, Lord. I pray that we would be revived and reinvigorated to to renew our commitments to this body and to the health and the functioning of this body so that we can be, Lord, what you desire us to be. To be a united fellowship that loves one another, that lives out the biblical commands so that we might be sanctified and grow up into Christ so that we might be mature in Him. I pray that we would be thrilled, Lord. That we would be ecstatic. That we would treasure this great gift that You've given to us to be part of the church. May we not overlook it. May we not minimize it. May we not downplay it. We are essential, Lord, to Your plan. And we are thrilled at that. May your purposes be accomplished in us, Lord. May we live these things out to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.